text is provided for you in the bulletin. It's also in the Pew Bible as well as your own Bible. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we have been studying Paul's first epistle to the church at Thessalonica, probably the earliest one that Paul wrote. And it turns out that we're, we are progressing through the uh, epistle. Our next portion fits perfectly for Resurrection Sunday. Our text is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Clearly the mood this morning is celebration, so forgive me if I cast a damper on it. But I want to ask you this question. Does your soul labor under the weight of things that are just intolerable about this life. Things we all dislike, believer or unbeliever alike. Do you wish every wrong would be made right? Every evil justly punished? Every sorrow swallowed up in joy? Every severed relationship healed. All disease cast from our bodies. Every nasty voice silenced. Every grief turned to joy and every pain to pleasure. Sure you do. And if you long for these things, you need hope. The Bible basically tells us that, first of all, acknowledges all of this is part of life, all of these things, sadly. And that without hope, we will really be crushed under the weight of these things. This text is essentially about hope. Look at how Paul begins. He addresses two kinds of people, those who have had loved ones that died and are grieving without hope, and those that have loved ones that died and are grieving who have hope. Verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's the new Christian word for death. They're sleeping. So that you may not grieve as others 
who have no hope. So in the face of things that are just intolerable about this life, there are those who grieve with hope and those who grieve without it. With unceasing tears, despair, cynicism, and anger. So first, let's define hope. Secondly, we're going to look at five facts that illumine why we can be sure in our hope. What is hope, number one? It's actually one of the central themes of this epistle. The word occurs in every chapter. And notice in chapter one, Paul commends the church in Thessalonica for their, quote, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That tells you that Jesus is not just the source of hope. He is the object of our hope. I hope I make that clear. (laughs) Now, our English word doesn't help. So you say, we're having a picnic this afternoon. Is it going to rain on our picnic? I hope not. That means wish without certainty. Biblical hope is better translated confident certainty. A certain unshakable expectation that everything will end up as it should be. And the essence of hope is simply this. God also finds intolerable about this life what you find intolerable. And God most certainly will, in the exercise of his power and his time, make everything perfect again. And if that's not enough, the promise of God, he grounds his promise of hope in history Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was on earth reversing the effects of the curse, beginning to make all things new. He demonstrated this by showing his authority over nature, over sin, over sickness, over death, and over Satan. And the point is, it is still a work in progress. One day, Christ will finish making all things new. Hope is the assurance of the finished product. And so Christians are freed with that assurance to live for something better than we ever imagined was possible. The best is yet to come. Let me draw a contrast for you for two confessions. Two of the sitcoms I have watched on Netflix are The Office and Parks and Rec. They're both created by secular people. And that both series end with the same punchline. Both series end with this punchline. All we have in life are friendships. And as important as friendships are, and as much as friendships are a distinctly biblical idea, there's a whole lot more than just friendships. It is the kingdom of God realized in all its glory, the fullness of joy, the fullness of peace, the fullness of happiness, the fullness of purity, the fullness of joy, rest and love, and the absence of tears, sorrow, sickness, sadness, death, warfare, and strife. That's what's really best about life. God is bringing that to pass. We're waiting for it. Now, why is this important for the Thessalonians? Why does Paul need to stress this? They're being persecuted because they love Jesus. That's not right. They've lost loved ones to the grave. That's not right. 
and the lover of their souls, Jesus, is out of sight. That's not right. And so hope enables you to press on even against the worst obstacles. Suppose for a minute you're a bride on her wedding day, and you're all dressed, and you go out and you get in the car. Dead battery. Call the wrecker. They come, charge your battery. You start on your way. Flat tire. Call the wrecker. Change the tire. Heading towards the church. It's a traffic jam on 495. Now you're not going to panic. You're not going to go home. Your honey has called from the church. I'm here. I'm waiting. I'm going nowhere. The banquet hall is ready. Hope is our confidence that Jesus has gone, as he tells us in John 14, to prepare a place for us, and if I go, I will come again, because I want you there. The groom is waiting. He'll get us there. Hope, confident expectation of a future certainty. There's this amazing verse in Hebrews chapter 19. It's Hebrews 6:19, and Hebrews is a book all about hope as well. But Hebrews 6:19 says this: "This hope we have as an anchor of the soul." Now, in the history of anchors, where do all anchors go, beloved? What direction do they go? They go down because they're heavy. They 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 anchor. They go down. The writer of Hebrews says, we have this hope as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which, which enters within the veil. This is the only anchor in history that goes up. It goes up into Christ who has gone into the holy place. He is resurrected into the holy place. That's where our hope is. It's in Jesus. That's what makes it steadfast and sure. Jesus is steadfast and sure. This is not Maria on the sound of music singing, I have confidence and confidence alone. Is it? This is not a leap in the dark. So what makes Christian hope so secure, firm, certain, unshakable, immovable, and ironclad? Five facts. Now I'm going to move to the second part of the sermon. The text gives you five facts. Because you know, it's hard to hold hope in our hearts. And all the intolerable things of life tend to push it out because we see them in technicolor. Hope is more ethereal. So God says, no, I'm going to give you five facts that are designed to illumine what hope is and make your hope secure. Here they are. Fact number one, Christ died and rose from the grave. It's verse 14. Paul says, since we believe that Christ died and rose again, The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ always go together. They are two sides of the same coin. In the Gospels, whenever Jesus predicted his death, he always predicted his resurrection. You don't have one without the other. The death of Jesus is God saving you by putting his son in the place of the judgment of your sins. Jesus died on the cross, the place your sins would have sent you. Jesus took your place. He sacrificed and offered himself. But the guarantee in God's sight that that offering was accepted, that that was enough, that truly your sins are forgiven through the death of Jesus is the resurrection. He rose from the dead. 
That was the father's way of saying, you did it, son. You saved those people. They are guaranteed to live forever with the forgiveness of sins in my presence, just as you do. So what wrong is Jesus writing by dying on the cross and raising from the dead? The wrong of your sin. God is worthy of your obedience, your adoration, and your unbridled love. Any failure to give it is sin. Right? It's the most intolerable thing of this life is actually that we are not living every second to the praise of the glory of God. That's what's intolerable. And Jesus has come to reverse that to undo that, to save us from our indifference to God. I put there a verse from you that demands a lot more explanation than I'm going to give it from Romans 4.25, where Paul writes, Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. We would be just as well saying, Happy Justification Day on Easter morning. Because without the resurrection... There is no absolute assurance that God has counted you righteous in Jesus Christ. Let's change it. Hallelujah. Justification day. Okay. Fact number two. Christ is coming again. Verse 15 refers to the coming of the Lord. Verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Now Paul has this teaching based on the teaching of Jesus himself. He taught clearly that he is coming again. In fact, think about the last event of Jesus' earthly ministry. Acts chapter 1, we're told in verse 11, as Jesus ascended from the earth, disappearing into a cloud in the heavens, an angel came to those standing by and said, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That sets up an expectation that is prevalent through every New Testament book that Jesus Christ will return Paul calls it in Titus chapter 2, our blessed hope. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 that you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. See, hope isn't dead. It's living because it's hope in Christ who is himself alive. This is one of these instances where the Greek word is important to know. The Greek word for coming is parousia. And this word would have been significant for the Thessalonian hearers. In their culture, parousia had two different meanings. In terms of the religious cults, parousia referred to a hidden deity that made his presence known through a display of power. Parousia also uh, referred in cultural politics to an official term of a dignitary who visited the city. So if you lived in Thessalonica in the first century you always had to be on your guard for a parousia. Somebody from Rome was coming to inspect the city to make sure you were living in a way that brought honor to that dignity. Paul hijacks that word. And he uses it to describe the coming of Jesus for us, which is the final vindication, the final demonstration. He accepts you. He loves you. He is coming to take you into his bosom, not to reject you. Can I put it this way? God finishes what he starts. Let's suppose you, you bought a bicycle in the mail and it's going to get shipped in three boxes. One box for the wheels, one for the frame, and one for the handlebars. 
how those boxes going to be shipped. Box one of three, box two of three, box three of three, right? You get the first box, okay, not here yet, but I've got the first box. What are you waiting for? You're waiting for box two of two and box three of three. Excuse me, two of three and three of three. It's just like your salvation. Box one of three is what? The forgiveness of your sins. Your justification. You're right with God. You're adopted into his family. You already have, through FedEx, as it were, box one of three. You're waiting for box two of three. What is that? That is nothing less than the resurrection of your body. Hadn't arrived. You're waiting for it. You've got box one. You're waiting for box two of three. What's box three of three? It's the enjoyment of the presence of God perfectly on a renewed earth. Box three of three. So theologians like to say we live in the already, but the not yet. Your heart already has been resurrected. You're alive spiritually, but not yet your body. It awaits the final resurrection. So the fact that this passage refers to people who have died tells you this. Our life on this earth, united to Jesus by faith, is good. Those who have died are now in the presence of Jesus in heaven is better. And the best is yet to come. We will all enjoy the presence of Jesus in glorified bodies on a renewed earth. That's the best. And we'll be reunited with our loved ones. It's a little bit like this. You're a soldier. You're getting married. They pronounce the thing. You walk out through the front door. You turn to kiss your bride on the front steps of the church and your commanding officer says, we're going on a mission. I just got married we're going on a mission. And so the wife is waiting, waiting, waiting to, for him to descend that plane, embrace him, and get on with the marriage. That's us, the bride, waiting for Jesus. What, what wrong is the second coming of Jesus writing? Our separation from paradise. You, know, you, you weren't made by God to live outside of paradise. You were made for perfection. <laughs> it's a wonder life works at all in this farm fallen world. One of my favorite hymns is by a Scottish theologian named Horatius Bonar. And he, he wrote a hymn called The Daybreak. It's, it's not in the Trinity, it is in the RUF hymnal. And here's what he writes to capture this sense of the bride waiting for the final coming of Jesus. He writes this, for the light beyond the darkness when the reign of sin is done, when the storm has ceased its raging and the haven has been won, for the joy beyond the sorrow, joy of the eternal year, for the resurrection splendor, she, the church, is waiting, waiting here. Morn of morns, it comes at last. All the gloom of ages past, for the day of days the brightest, she is waiting, waiting here. Question. Are you trying to get paradise now, here? We have this thing in our culture called conspicuous consumption. People just can't stop buying things. And I think they're trying to get something that can't be got on this earth. Paradise. Think about 
The things you're doing, using your time, your thoughts, your money, are you trying to get paradise here? Just think about that. Third fact that makes our hope sure and, and, and illumines the nature of our hope. Third fact, the dead in Christ will come with him. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The reason Paul needs to write this is there was a misunderstanding that crept into this young church that if you had a loved one that died before the second coming, they were missing out. Maybe it went like this. The Christian life is a race. You run around the track, and if you die before the finish line, you don't get the prize. I don't know. But there was a fear. There was a concern. There was in, intolerableness, right? Uh-oh, have my loved ones who died before the second coming, the Perusa, somehow missed out on that? And Paul says, no, they're only sleeping. That's the new word for death. And how appropriate. What happens after you are sleeping? You awaken. After you die, you're raised. What wrong, beloved, will be righted when Jesus comes again with our loved ones? The wrong of being ripped apart from our loved ones. This is why we sour and grieve when someone dies that we love. You were never meant to have close relationships ripped apart. Never meant. God didn't create you to have loved ones that would die. Jesus is writing that wrong. Isn't it interesting that in almost all the cases in the New Testament, when Jesus runs into a dead person, he raises them and gives them back to their loved ones. That's what the second coming is going to do. I'm going to put an end to death, says Jesus. Paul, reflecting on that, writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Imagine that. For fact, to illumine the nature and security of our hope, we will receive glorified, indestructible bodies. So what's wrong with human existence right now as it exists on earth? What's wrong with it? Just one thing, sin. The presence of sin and the penalty of sin. The Bible says that we live in a holy universe, a God who is just, so that means wherever there is sin, God promises as an act of his own glory, and because God is good, God will punish sin. In other words, in God's universe, sin inexorably attracts judgment. If you die with your sin, you'll be judged for your sin. The Christian gospel is, Christ says to anyone, I'll take your sin. Give me your sin. And on Good Friday, Jesus took your sin, he nailed it to the cross, and he bore the judgment of God against your sin. He sets us free from condemnation and guilt. He set us free from the penalty of sin. But the presence of sin is still with you, is it not? 
Indwelling sin is alive and well in all of us. You either know it or you don't. Even though you've been forgiven of your sins and you've been made alive in Christ, sin still dwells in your body. And you know what? It shouldn't be that way. Your body wasn't made for sin. Your body wasn't made to die. It's going to die and decay because of sin. That's the penalty of sin. You die. (laughs) But your body was never created to die, nor was it created to have sin. It's amazing. We can live with sin in our bodies. So this is the event that writes that wrong. Jesus is coming to raise our bodies. First foretold in Daniel 12 and then echoed in the words of Jesus in John 5. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the grave will hear the voice and, and will hear his voice and will come out those who have done good to a resurrection of life, those who have done bad to a resurrection of death. And Paul's focusing on that voice in this text. And he's laying the stress that those who have died will be reunited with those who are alive. Notice the end of verse 16. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and say we will always be with the Lord. So rather than being disadvantaged because they died before the second coming, actually those who preceded us in faith are advantaged. When Jesus comes again, those who are with him now in spirit are coming with him in spirit, and at that event, as Jesus breaks into this atmosphere, their bodies will be raised from the dead, reunited with their spirits, and they will instantaneously be in glorified bodies just as Jesus is coming in his glorified body. That happens first. And then at that event, that signals us being caught up off this earth, we who know Jesus, and in an instant we'll be transformed, we'll get our glorified bodies, and we all meet each other with Jesus in the air. But that's not the end. Jesus is coming down. Heaven is coming back to this earth. We're not meant to live in this ethereal thing where there's clouds and harps and who knows what. No, we're destined for a renewed earth, a renewed cosmos. So somewhere in there... There's going to be a fire, according to 2 Peter 3, that purges this earth of sin. And we are coming down to a new earth to live in glorified bodies on that earth in the presence of Jesus with one another forever. And this is what Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15. I won't read it. You can study it on your own. Last point. Five facts that show why Christians aren't pie in the sky. My hope is sure. It illumines the nature of our hope. This unmissable event will right every wrong. So, beloved, what's wrong with this world? Good guys are punished, and bad guys seem to get away with it. Injustice, liars, cheaters, murderers, thieves, they seem to get away with it, and they can hide for a season. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And the reason a lot of people, non-religious people, live in despair and hopelessness is they know there's no final accounting. If, if you don't believe in God, Hitler's never going to be judged for what he did. No evil will ever be recompensed. That's a cause for despair. One Christian historian put it this way. If Christ was raised from the dead, nothing else matters. He said if Christ was not raised from the dead, nothing else matters. You're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. But he was raised from the dead 
And this rescue described here is unmistakable. There's nothing secret about this rapture. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. Every single ear on earth will hear this. The judgment meted out to those who do not know Jesus is detailed in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I encourage you to read it on your own time. We'll look more at the, angel, at the voice of the angel and the trumpet ne- in next week's sermon as we get into first, uh, the first part of chapter 5. So I'm going to say more about it this week. But let me just ask this question. What wrong is being righted when Jesus comes in this way? It's just not right that we're not living in God's presence. You weren't built to live apart from God. Lovers are meant to be together. (laughs) He loves us. We love him. Jesus is coming again to right that wrong. And that's why Paul says in verse 17, so we will always be with the Lord. That's what's right. (laughs) We'll always be with the Lord. Do you see how that means that if you are in your right mind, and you were built for the presence of God, you and I should ache that we're not in the presence of God. And I want to ask you this question. If that's true, what are you doing to medicate the ache of your soul not being in the presence of God? Too much work? Are you trying to find a relationship to medicate it? Sensuality? Substances? Buying things. Hope does endure with an ache that we're not yet with the Lord. We'll always be with the Lord. That's the right, the wrong that's being righted. Last thing. Notice how Paul gives a practical conclusion in verse 18. He says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This isn't just theology, this is incredibly practical. Encourage one another with these words. It raises this question of you. What are you contributing to a culture of encouragement at Wallace? The way you speak, the way you resolve conflict, the way you disagree with people, the way you greet people, the way you pray for people, How are you contributing to a culture of encouragement? Because Paul seems to be saying, hope blossoms in a greenhouse where there's encouragement from one to another. Think about that. A lively hope will move you to be an encourager. Encouragement will move others to a lively hope. But it's terribly practical. You're not encouraged? Get with people who are. You're encouraged? <clears throat> Get with people who need it. And my hope, hope, blossom among us. Let's pray. Now may the God of all hope <coughs> fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.